0: Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister and a member of the Tuesdays with Merton planning committee, along with Daniel Harran and Ellen Cope. Dan is a Franciscan friar and director of the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Ellen is a professor of religion and holder of the chair in Faith and Life at Baldwin-Wallace University. And he also serves on the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. The webinars are aired on the second Tuesday of each month. You may post questions in the chat at any time during this webinar. Please send your questions to Alan Kolp. Please also note that we are recording this webinar It will be available on YouTube and as a podcast soon after the live event. And now it is my pleasure to introduce to you, Dr. Gregory K. Hillis. Greg is a professor of theology and religious studies at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. He joined the faculty in 2008 after completing his PhD in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. His doctoral research was on early Christian theology with a particular focus on St. Cyril of Alexandria. He has published a number of academic articles on Cyril's theology and the introduction to a new translation of Cyril's Glafira, published by Catholic University of America Press. In the last few years, Greg has turned his attention to the life and writings of Thomas Merton. In addition to teaching a popular undergraduate course on Merton, he has published articles on Merton's life and thought and lectured widely on Merton's theology. His recent book on Merton published by Liturgical Press is titled Man of Dialogue, Thomas Merton's Catholic Identity. In 2019, Greg was awarded the Wilson W. Wyatt Faculty Fellowship for Excellence in Teaching and Scholarship at Bellarmine University. And in 2021, he was recognized as the Sister Pat Loman Student Advocate of the Year by Bellarmine Students. Here now is Dr. Gregory Hillis speaking on what does Thomas Merton have to tell us about Catholic identity.
1: Thank you very much for that uh, and for that uh, introduction, and thank you for the invitation to be with you all. I understand that it's um, traditional for the speaker to offer a prayer at the beginning of this. And I thought that uh, now would be uh, a particularly um, good time to uh, read through Merton's Prayer for Peace, which was read at the, in the House of Representatives on April 12th, 1962. Um, given uh, the circumstances that we currently find ourselves in uh, with Russia and Ukraine, Uh, uh, as well as conflict found elsewhere, I thought this was an apt prayer to pray. Almighty and merciful God, Father of all people, creator and ruler of the universe, Lord of history, whose designs are inscrutable, whose glory is without blemish, whose compassion for the errors of people is inexhaustible, in your will is our peace. Mercifully hear this prayer which rises to you from the tumult and desperation of a world in which you are forgotten, in which your name is not invoked your laws are derided and your presence is ignored because we do not know you we have no peace from the heart of an eternal silence you have watched the rise of empires and seen the smoke of their downfall you have seen egypt assyria babylon greece and rome once powerful carried away like sand in the wind you have witnessed the impious fury of ten thousand fratricidal wars in which great powers have torn whole continents to shreds in the name of peace and justice. And now our nation itself stands in imminent danger of a war, the like of which has never been seen. This nation dedicated to freedom, not to power, has obtained through freedom, a power it did not desire. And seeking by that power to defend its freedom, it is enslaved by the process and policies of power. Must we wage a war we do not desire, a war that can do us no good, and which our very hatred of war forces us to prepare? A day of ominous decision has now dawned on this free nation. Armed with a titanic weapon and convinced of our own right, we face a powerful adversary armed with the same weapon, equally convinced that he is right. In this moment of destiny, this moment we never foresaw, we cannot afford to fail. Our choice of peace or war may decide our judgment and publish it in an eternal record. In this fatal moment of choice in which we might begin the patient architecture of peace, we may also take the last step across the rim of chaos. Save us, then, from our obsessions. Open our eyes, dissipate confusions, teach us to understand ourselves and our adversary. Let us never forget that sins against the law of love are punished by loss of faith, And those without faith stop at no crime to achieve their ends. Help us to be masters of the weapons that threaten to master us. Help us to use our science for peace and plenty, not for war and destruction. Show us how to use atomic power to bless our children's children, not to blight them. Save us from the compulsion to follow our adversaries in all that we must hate, most hate, confirming them in their hatred and suspicion of us. Resolve our inner contradictions, which now grow beyond belief and beyond bearing. They are at once a torment and a blessing, for if you had not left us the light of conscience, we would not have to endure them. Teach us to be long-suffering in anguish and insecurity. Teach us to wait and trust. Grant light, grant strength and patience to all who work for peace. To this Congress, our president, our military forces, and our adversaries, grant us prudence in proportion to our power, wisdom in proportion to our science, humaneness in proportion to our wealth and might, and bless our earnest will to help all races and people to travel in friendship with us along the road to justice, liberty, and lasting peace. But grant us above all to see that our ways are not necessarily your ways, that we cannot fully penetrate the mystery of your designs, and that the very storm of power now raging on this earth reveals your hidden will and your inscrutable decision. Grant us to see your face in the lightning of this cosmic storm, O God of holiness, merciful to people. Grant us to seek peace where it is truly found. In your will, O God, is our peace. Amen. That's a longer prayer, I think, than normally gets prayed, but I thought that it was worthwhile for us to pray it tonight. And that was a prayer that was prayed in 1962 in the House of Representatives. Uh, but of course, uh, this was not the last time that uh, Merton's name would resound throughout the halls of uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, we, in 2015, as I think everybody on this call uh, knows, Pope Francis referred to Thomas Merton during a speech to the US Congress, referring to Merton as, uh, along with three other people, as uh, uh, an American that we should emulate. Of course, uh, uh, the reality is, is that... um, Thomas Merton hasn't always been seen in uh, popular light, particularly by Catholics in this country. Among those in the audience that day uh, in the U.S. Congress was Cardinal Worrell, Cardinal Donald Worrell, who as the Bishop of Pittsburgh was in charge of the Catechism, the U.S. Catechism, that was then being published by the USCCB for adults. It was intended to provide an exploration of the faith for young adults. And each of the chapters of the Catechism uh, opens with a brief story about a prominent American Catholic, um, well, most of whom are American. There's a a vignette on Dorothy Day, for example, uh, but there are no references to Thomas Merton. This was an intentional omission Uh, when it was asked when the editorial board and particularly Cardinal Worrell, then Bishop Worrell, was asked why he wasn't included in the catechism the answer was we do not know all the circumstances at the end of his life uh he was originally in the uh, first v- uh, volume of this, the first edition of this, uh, of the Catechism, and he received uh, the editorial board received a rounding uh, condemnation by a couple of catechetical translators, Monsignor Michael Wren and Kenneth Whitehead, uh, who wrote a scathing critique of the first draft of this Catechism, uh, uh, arguing that while. Merton was a, quote, gifted writer. He was, quote, a lapsed monk, a one-time professed Catholic religious who later left his monastery and at the end of his life was actually off wandering in the East, seeking the consolations, apparently, of non-Christian Eastern spirituality, end quote. They determined that Merton, quote, can scarcely be considered an exemplary Catholic, And the fact that the editors had included them in the first edition, quote, cast doubt on their understanding of Catholic teaching and practice. For whatever reason, Merton's own Catholic identity has been something that has been questioned by many people. I have uh, myself, as a Merton scholar, regularly I receive questions about Merton's Catholic identity. from. Uh, those who are on the more conservative or traditionalist end of the spectrum within Catholicism, I often get the question, uh, particularly with reference to the last part of his life. Well, Merton wasn't really Catholic, was he? right? I mean, it's not really a question, but that's the, you know, that it, that, that's the statement. And then on the other end of the spectrum are those who uh, like Merton, Um, even though he was Catholic. In other words, they sort of look at him and uh, appreciate his writings, but sort of dismiss the fact that he was Catholic. And they will often say to me, well, he wasn't really Catholic, was he, right? It's the same comment, just with a different inflection. And uh, what had struck me as uh, somebody who's been influenced by Thomas Merton um, uh, and by his theology, by his spirituality, um, and and actually uh, many years ago was led into the Catholic Church in no small part because of the influence of Thomas Merton on my life. Uh, it struck me as a strange thing that there was this conflict about Thomas Merton's Catholic identity. So I decided to write a book about it, um, and that's the, the topic of my book, which came out uh, last November, um, Man of Dialogue, Thomas Merton's Catholic Identity. Uh, what I... Seek to do in the book is to address um, how Merton understood himself to be uh, Catholic. What, what, what? How did he understand his own identity as a Catholic, uh, as a Catholic priest, and as a Catholic monk? Moreover, what I wanted to do was to um, uh, address questions about why he was so willing to engage in dialogue with um, uh, other Christian traditions, why he was willing to engage in ecumenical dialogue, uh, but also why he was so willing to engage in interreligious dialogue and why he saw that as being so paramount. Um, and so that's the subject of, uh, of my book. And so what I, here, here's what I plan on doing is just talking a little bit about, uh, what I endeavor to do in the book, um, how I endeavor to do it. Uh, in the various chapters that I write. And then I want to spend uh, just a short amount of time looking at what I think is the heart of the book, and that is uh, Merton, Thomas Merton's Eucharistic theology, which is, uh, I think, uh, I argue anyways, his understanding of the Eucharist is um, uh, what compels him to recognize the importance of dialogue, that Uh, that dialogue is not something uh, that is simply an add-on to uh, him being a Catholic, but actually is at the very heart of what it means to be Catholic. Um, And then what I thought I would do is I would read for you, I would finish by reading for you a couple pages uh, uh, from the book in which I um, talk about um, Pope Francis's uh, encyclical Fratelli Tutti um, and relate it to what I think uh, Thomas Merton is all about. So in the book, um, I I go over Merton's life and his thought essentially chronologically. So in the first chapter, I look at um, uh, Thomas Merton, the convert, and in that. Uh, chapter, of course, that's the chapter where there's the least amount of uh, controversy because that's the chapter. Every anybody who is suspicious—that's uh, a Catholic who's suspicious of Merton—still likes the Seven Story Mountain because he's, you know, sufficiently um, judgmental and uh, uh, in that in that book about other Christian traditions and other religions. Um, uh, but he also outlines what was it that compelled him to become uh, a Roman Catholic. Uh, what was it that compelled him to uh, uh, become a monk in a Trappist monastery? And the uh, there are obviously a number of different things that compelled him, of course, his reading of Etienne Gilson, his, uh, the influence of Jacques Maritain's writing, um, uh, but and also the influence of um, uh, Brahmakari, who was so important, the, the Hindu monk, who was so important uh, in leading Merton to read uh, figures like Augustine and Thomas Akempis. But the, the, the theme that pops up continually in the Seminary Mountain, as well as in his journals, when it comes to uh, his attraction to the Catholic faith, is the Eucharist. Um, when he goes into uh, Corpus Christi uh, Parish and attends Mass for the first time, um, he finds that experience uh, overwhelming in, um, in the most positive way. He is transformed by um, the, the way in which the people who are there for the mass are united with each other um, in prayer. That there is a, a diversity of people who are united with each other in prayer. There's diversity of people in terms of uh, class, in terms of race, uh, in terms of age. And uh, Merton is impressed by that. And, it, and we find that uh, in the Seven Story Mountain, uh, he is continually talking about the beauty uh, and and the, the, the transformative capabilities of the Eucharist. In the second chapter, I look at Merton, the priest, and I look specifically at uh, his um, uh, road to ordination. Of course, we know in the seven-story mountain that uh, for a while there, he really didn't feel that he was called to the priesthood. Um, and yet, uh, when he finally enters the monastery and it's clear that he is uh, on the road towards ordination um, there's an incredible relief that he experiences Um, and uh, the way in which he describes particularly in his private journals that journey towards the priesthood and then the way in which he talks about the importance of his own priesthood right up until the end of his life and the centrality that the Eucharist, that daily celebration of the Eucharist, has for him, as a Catholic priest, is really profound. Um, uh, he's exuberant in his journals when describing um, being ordained as a priest, and he's exuberant because of what he understands to be the um, uh, the, the, the 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 wonderful calling that he has to work for uh, the unity of all people. He remarks in a letter to, um, Jacques Maritain that at the time of the liturgy, when he's called to pray for all of his friends, that he spends an incredible amount of time there praying for all those and uniting himself spiritually with all those for whom he's offering the mass. Um, he uh, uh, that that particular chapter, uh, I just emphasize uh, over and over again um, the continual references to uh, the importance of the Eucharist in Thomas Merton's own life as a monk, um, and particularly as a priest. In the third chapter, I look at Merton as um, novice master. Uh, He was novice master at the Abbey of Gethsemane for 10 years. And uh, Patrick O'Connell has done us a great service uh, by... Publishing, uh, I believe it's up to twelve volumes now. If the last volume hasn't been published, it soon will be, of Merton's conference notes that uh, uh, that were the backbone of the the curriculum essentially that he gave to the monks, uh, uh, the new monks, the novices at the Abbey of Gethsemane, and uh, what becomes abundantly clear, if you make your way through those conference notes, is how incredibly immersed Merton was in the um, tradition itself. Uh, Merton was introducing uh, and providing a kind of curriculum to uh, uh, Christian theology, to monasticism, to mystical theology, and to uh, Cistercian history that Uh, went really above and beyond that provided a kind of um, introduction to novices that um, really rivaled the kind of, uh, I think, theological uh, experience that uh, others may have had in um, uh, in seminaries. And and so in, uh, in that chapter where I look at Merton as novice master, uh, what, I'm, uh, what I'm delving into there is um, how uh, deeply he understood uh, Catholic theology and Catholic history, um, as well as uh, looking at what he understood to be most important. Uh, What was it that he felt absolutely needed to be imparted to his novices as they were discerning their own vocation? In the fourth chapter, I look at uh, Merton's own Marian spirituality. Um, uh, uh, Father John uh, Eudes Bamberger, um, who was a monk with Merton, uh, at one point drew attention to Merton's devotion to Mary, saying, quote, he had a very simple faith in her. And apparently he had a very deep love for her. It wasn't sentimental at all, very theological and so on, but it was very real. Uh, We find in Merton's journals, in his letters, uh, and particularly in his poetry, um, uh, a deep devotion to uh, Mary, Um, He surrounds himself with icons of Mary, for example, out at the hermitage. He names the hermitage Our Lady of Carmel. Uh, His Marian devotion uh, weaves its way in and out of his life, right from the very beginning of his conversion to Catholicism uh, to the very end. Uh, In the fifth chapter, I look specifically at Merton's writings on peace, um and uh, emphasize that uh, for Merton, his arguments um, uh, against nuclear war and for peace were rooted specifically in uh, a return to the sources of the faith. Uh, and Merton is quite explicit about that in his anti-war writings that he wants to bring his fellow Catholics, many of whom are calling, including bishops, are calling for a first strike against Russia, a first nuclear strike against Russia. Uh, He wants them to understand uh, what it is that the tradition actually has to say about war uh, and what it is in particular that the, the papal magisterium of the 20th century has to say about nuclear war. And uh, so Merton goes all the way back to the New Testament, uh, looking at the example of Jesus, looking at the example of um, the apostles, and then looking at the example of early Christians who chose uh, martyrdom uh, rather than uh, choosing to fight. He was not Uh, a pacifist. Uh, He was a pacifist in practice, but not in theory. He was somebody who understood and supported the just war tradition. But for Merton, um, weapons of mass destruction changed the equation completely. And he uh, came to argue, in fact, that a just war, the just war tradition, really no longer applies in a world uh, of uh, that contains nuclear weapons um, and, and the possibility of nuclear war. Um, and, and therefore, on the basis of not only the tradition of the church itself, uh, its early tradition, but also what uh, popes from uh, Pope Pius XI right up to Pope uh, Paul VI have had to say uh, about nuclear weapons that uh, uh, essentially it led him to argue uh, that we need to uh, outlaw war, that we uh, that war needs to be something that is abolished, but that's an argument that he makes theologically, um, and and that's the the point of that particular chapter. Similarly, in the next chapter, when I look at Merton's anti-racist racism um, uh, writings. Um, He's extremely passionate about that issue, um, and he's passionate about it um, not simply because racism is uh, 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 you know, uh, horrible, but he understands it to be a horrible sin. That is, he understands racism through a theological lens, uh, recognizing that, in particular, when one takes the Incarnation, seriously, the incarnation of God to become a human being, uh, as well as when one takes the Eucharist seriously, that um, uh, that the Eucharist is the manifestation of God's overwhelming love for us, uh, regardless of race, uh, nationality, or any other ways in which we divide ourselves from one another. Uh, that racism is itself... Um, Uh, such a grievous sin that he felt called to write against it. Um, And he brings his theological acumen into that argument. The seventh chapter, uh, I wasn't going to write, um, but uh, then uh, uh, Jerry Wills uh, convinced me to do so, not personally, but through an article that he wrote in Harper's Magazine, um, in which it was quite a critical argument uh, in, I believe it was April, 2019, a critical argument against Thomas Merton as a sort of pseudo monk. And he brings up Merton's relationship with um, M the nurse uh, here in Louisville. And so uh, that chapter, I look at that particular relationship. My goal in that chapter is not to defend Merton, Um uh, or to defend that relationship, uh, but rather to place it in context. And in particular, one of the key arguments that I make there is that it's uh, quite significant that Burton, who, who knew very well that his journals were going to be published, uh, allowed, uh, intentionally kept all the references uh, to his relationship within his journal, that it it manifests a kind of humility and a willingness to be known um, that I think is exemplary. And that's the the point that I wanted to make in that chapter. Uh, in the concluding chapter, I look at Merton's own interreligious uh, dialogue, particularly in the last few years of his life and particularly in the last few months of his life in Asia. Um, uh, contrary to those rumors that uh, one uh, continues to hear bandied about on Catholic Twitter and elsewhere that Merton had gone to Asia to convert to Buddhism, his letters and his private journals uh, give a much, much different story. Uh, and that's what I look at there. But it's in the eighth chapter that, uh, that really the heart of my argument, uh, I think, is to be found. And it's this that I want us to spend, uh, I want to spend just a few minutes on. And that is Merton's eucharistic theology. So I, I, I mentioned that when I look at uh, when I looked at Merton's um, uh, priesthood uh, in, in the second chapter, I I, I delve into um, what it uh, what the Eucharist meant for him in terms of. Um, uh, how he would so regularly turn to it in moments of need, that he would, uh, with Catholic and non-Catholic correspondents alike, uh, let them know that he was going to say Mass for them. Um, and if they weren't Catholic, he would explain why he felt that it was so important for him to say Mass for them, uh, letting them know that this was um, a moment of, of particular importance that he wanted to um, uh, that, that it was a time when he felt closest to God and wanted to bring his, um, uh, uh, their concerns to God in that particular moment. But for Merton, he understands uh, uh, the Eucharist itself uh, as a sacrament of love. He interprets the Eucharist uh, with the understanding that humanity has a propensity to fragment uh, a, a propensity to divide ourselves, yes, from God, but also a propensity to divide ourselves from one another, and that the sacrament of the Eucharist was given to us was given uh, as a means by which to reattain the unity for which we were created, um, and so it's in this it's in this context that he understands the Eucharist as the sacrament of love, that it is a sacrament that. Um, Uh, that allows us to be um, not only united to God, but to united, uh, but united to one another. And it does this in three different ways. One is, is it reveals to us for Merton's from Merton's perspective, uh, it reveals to us that God is uh, uh, primarily a God of love; that God uh, views each and every one of us uh, through the uh, through eyes of an all-consuming and utterly generous love. Moreover, uh, in and through receiving this love, we are transformed by it, uh, such that we ourselves uh uh become infused with this love merton says um that in being united with christ uh through the eucharist we are transformed um uh to to attain to our true selves uh selves that give of ourselves to one another um selves that love and uh moreover we through the eucharist are transformed um Uh, as a community, uh, as a church, to become icons of the Trinity, who is itself love, right? That the Trinity exists, as Augustine says, the Trinity exists as love loving, right? That the Godhead exists um, eternally giving uh, with each person eternally giving of themselves to one another in uh, an exchange of love that is so profound that threeness comes to equal oneness. Merton takes this with an immense seriousness and understands, therefore, that the Eucharist calls us, the Eucharist calls us to view one another as Christ views them. Uh, to view one another, in fact, Uh, in such a way that we see Christ within each person. And we don't get to pick and choose, Merton says. We don't get to see Christ in one person and not see Christ in another. He says the Eucharist calls us to see Christ in everybody. This is what compels Merton, I argue, to dialogue. This is what compels him to recognize that dialogue is at the very heart of what Catholicism is all about, that dialogue is not in co- uh, in contrast to some who want to criticize Pope Francis's understanding of dialogue. Um, uh, dialogue is not about watering down, uh, coming down uh, our faith, coming down to uh, some uh, uh, you know uh, common denominator, right? Dialogue rather is an orientation. Towards the other, an orientation that is rooted in a love that uh, sees Christ in the other, even when they can't see Christ within us. Um, this is what compels him to engage in dialogue with, uh, uh, in ecumenical dialogue, um, to try and uh, transcend the differences that uh, have emerged uh, between ourselves. Uh, in the Christian tradition, but this is also what compels him to engage in dialogue with uh, uh, with Buddhists, with Hindus, with Muslims. Uh, this is what, uh, and with Jews. This is what compels him to uh, um, endeavor to see others as God sees them. In other words, what I argue is that um, uh, to be Catholic is, in fact, to be called to dialogue. Uh, to uh, a Catholicism that is insular, uh, a call Catholicism that is judgmental, and a Catholicism that refuses to engage others is, in fact, an aberration of what the church is called to be. Uh, a church, the church is called through the Eucharist to um, engage with the world. Uh, engage with others, and to do so from the standpoint of love, to do so on the ground of love. As Merton says in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, he says, he, does, he I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, why is it that so many people are so wary about engaging in dialogue, right? Uh, uh, why, w- why would we feel so um, uh, cagey about engaging in dialogue when uh, the very ground on which we are engaging in gr- dialogue is the ground of love, uh, ground that is uh, thoroughly Christian ground. And he ends the particular entry here in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander by saying, "If we're wary of dialogue, is it because is it because we are perhaps not thoroughly Christian enough?" Right. Um, so the the dialogue uh, for me is uh, uh, one of the most important messages that Thomas Merton has for our present day circumstances. Uh, it, it's, an, it's a message that we need to hear within the church, those of us who are Catholic, um, those of us who are Catholic, those of us who aren't Catholic and are looking into the Catholic church are probably wondering what the hell is going on, uh, because we aren't getting along, we aren't engaging in dialogue with one another, we aren't manifesting any kind of unity with one another. Um but it's also important in our political circumstances, uh, not just in terms of what's going on in our um, uh, uh, halls of power, uh, in, our, in our cities, our states, and Washington, uh, but also what's going on uh, worldwide. Uh, Merton's conception of dialogue is, I think, uh, absolutely vital and needs to be talked about in more detail. And on that note, let me end by uh, reading a little bit about um, uh, from uh, what I have to say about Pope Francis's Fratelli Tutti and how I think it relates to Thomas Merton. On October 3rd, 2020, the vigil for the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi, Pope Francis signed his social encyclical Fratelli Tutti. Written and published in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, This document focuses on the imperative of love and openness to others in a world that appears to be fracturing. Pope Francis begins the encyclical by bringing up the example of St. Francis of Assisi, specifically pointing to an episode in his life when he visited the Sultan. Quote, Francis went to meet the Sultan with the same attitude that he instilled in his disciples. If they found themselves among the Saracens and other non-believers... Without renouncing their identity, they were not to engage in arguments or disputes, but to be subject to every human creature for God's sake. End quote. The Pope praised his namesake for his quote, openness of heart, which knew no bounds and transcended differences of origin, nationality, color, or religion. End quote. As I read the Pope's description of St. Francis, I could not help but think that Thomas Merton also exemplified. Precisely this kind of openness of heart, an openness that was firmly rooted in his own Catholic identity rather than opposed to it. There are those who are attracted to the early Merton of the Seven Story Mountain and its account of a man and a monk who portrayed Catholicism in glowing terms, depicted other religions and Christian traditions somewhat judgmentally, and described his entrance into the Abbey of Gethsemane as an escape from the influences of an evil and pernicious world. Many of those attracted to the early Merton are wary of the later Merton, who dove headlong into interreligious and ecumenical dialogue and who opened himself up to a world that he had previously rejected. But as I endeavored to demonstrate in my book, the transformation of the early, more insular Merton to a monk open to the world and to others did not involve repudiation of Catholic tradition, but rather a deepening understanding of and engagement with it. He came to understand as Pope Francis is himself trying to teach Catholics today, that our faith and particularly our understanding of the meaning of the Eucharist calls us to a radical openness to others. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you, Greg. That was a, a very engaging and uh, enlightening trip through your book. You gave the cliff notes to all the folks who haven't read it, so <laughs> kudos to you and, and to do it with brevity and clarity, no small thing. Let me begin with you and, and the book writing. I, I'm interested in how, how did writing the book affect you and did it cause anything for you to change?
1: yeah, it affected me a great deal and, and and I think it affected me particularly in terms of Merton's understanding of dialogue. Um, you know, this is you can't read Merton without coming across his references to dialogue. You can't come across Merton, you can't read Merton without seeing that as being a paramount theme. Um, but immersing oneself in Merton and coming to realization of just how seriously he took dialogue um, has led me, to have to think seriously about how i view others most recently for example i got myself into a little bit of trouble uh because um uh it, within the catholic church there's something of a, a, a bit of a controversy with uh pope francis and uh, traditionalists where he um came out with a uh, a document in which he um, uh, really kind of uh um uh, clamp down on those who wanted a more uh, traditionalist liturgy uh, making it so that um, uh, it's more difficult for traditionalists to celebrate the liturgy and whatnot. Um, and I wrote an article that 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 went over well with traditionalists and didn't go over very well with um, progressives in which I sort of said, you know is uh, Pope Francis really following the kind of, uh, dialogical approach that he has been advocating, and that I see in Thomas Merton's writings. Um, I still haven't received a good answer to that question, but I'm not sure I would have asked that question had I not really engaged in the kind of study of Merton that I did.
2: It's, it's really interesting. <clears throat> a kind of follow-up question to that. Uh, there, there's so much that one could ask, but I was really fascinated that you called the Eucharist a sacrament of love, um, and the, the third of the three things, if I were tracking well, the Eucharist transforms a community to become icons of the Trinity. I really like that phrase, icons of the Trinity, but it caused me to ask, uh, I, I'm, I'm not Catholic, I am Christian, do you see, or does Merton see, non-Christians as icons of the Trinity, those who don't participate in the Eucharist?
1: So, yeah, I mean, uh, he didn't, uh, apart from a few moments in his life, uh, most notably uh, during the peace conference that uh, Gordon Oyer wrote, a book about that's so good. Um, there was a moment there where where there was a intercommunion, right, where where uh, people from all uh, traditions, uh, Mennonite, uh, Episcopalian, etc., uh, participated in the Eucharist. That wasn't the norm for Merton, so uh, I, I'm not, I, I, he doesn't really comment all that much about saying open uh, table, but what the eucharist does for him as a catholic is it allows him or to or it compels him to see christ in everybody including in those who are in non uh who are who are christians in other traditions and i think it would lead it it would lead him to um a deep uh respect of the very traditions that are found within other Christian traditions, for example. You can't read. I mean, I, I would I would have loved um, for Merton, for example, to read Calvin. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but you can't read Calvin and not see um, how profoundly he understood the unitive of effects of the Lord's Supper to be, right? Um, similarly, when it comes to... Um, Uh, uh, Anabaptist understanding of the Lord's Supper. There's a deep, profound understanding of what we are called to uh, in and through the Lord's Supper in terms of our responsibility towards God, but uh, notably in uh, responsibility towards others. I have no doubt that Merton would have seen that um, had he engaged in that kind of uh, reading and study of them.
2: That's cool. Having read Calvin, I it never occurred to me that Merton could have read him too.
1: Um, I've, I don't know. I'd love to, I don't, I've never, you know, maybe somebody on this uh, particular zoom knows whether he's engaged in a reading of dial, a reading of Calvin or not, but I don't remember him doing so.
2: I don't remember him either, but somebody who's smarter than we are might <laughs> might have an answer. So one of the things that intrigues me, I, I think clearly one of the, the hopes of the Tuesday with Merton is, um, Outreach and enterprise we're involved with is that we might address an audience beyond just the International Thomas Merton Society. You teach college age kids. How do you think the most effective way to introduce and expose them about Merton?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm first of all, I'm really lucky to teach college kids about Merton at Bellarmine University, where the Merton Center is, and uh, and an only an hour's drive away from the Abbey of Gethsemane. So I will say that I, I get to cheat a little bit in terms of uh, introducing them to Merton. Um, when we read, for example, um, that section in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, uh, where Merton describes his fourth and walnut experience. We begin class by going up to the Merton Center and Paul Pearson brings out the journal entry. Uh, mm-hmm. And we look at the journal, the actual journal where Merton uh, first wrote in on March 19th, 1958, the the uh, his fourth and walnut experience. Then we look at the typescript of uh, one of the typescripts of Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander and see the edits that Merton himself made. Um, and then we go down to the Abbey and we talk, we, we spend time at, um, in fact, I'm taking a group there this Saturday. We're going and spending time with Brother Paul Quennen, who I know many of you know, and um, hanging out at the, at the Hermitage. And we just have a conversation. And at, at, at some point, we just sort of rest in the silence of that place. And so I will say that um, uh, one of the things that I have done that I've incorporated when it comes to introducing Merton is that we now um, spend, uh, we begin every class with 10 minutes of silence. Um, uh, Merton has this lovely essay that he wrote for the University of Louisville Catholic Newspaper. Uh, about what silence could mean for college-age students and why silence is important. So we read that at the very beginning of the semester, and we um, uh, and we take that seriously. And uh, so I actually assign them. They have to they have to spend ten minutes of silence uh, a day, um, and they and they write about it. So uh, uh, on the one hand, they get into Merton's thought by by spending that little bit of silence every day Uh, but then I also tell them that one of the ways maybe to get to know Merton is by journaling like Merton journaled Um, so they write they journal they have to write a certain number of journal entries a week and I have to say they're an incredible gift to read Um, they they take it uh, very seriously and they're some of the most insightful and um, beautiful things that I've ever read from undergraduates. Um, And then we just dive, we dive into Merton's writings, and they are astounded by the relevance of his writings. Uh, Whether it's his, we begin by looking at his contemplative writings. Uh, But pretty soon we're going to be looking at his uh, anti-war writings and his uh, anti-racism writings. And while previously students sort of felt like his writings about nuclear wars were seemed a bit outdated, unfortunately, I don't think they're going to have that sense this semester.
2: Yeah, follow-up question that um, the old now time-worn phrase, I'm spiritual but not religious. I'm wondering um, with young people, and then, as we know, the, the people who don't go to church and don't affiliate are, are the growing uh, group in this country and beyond. That makes sense to them, too. Is it, is it possible that you nuance the difference between what I'm going to call Merton's spirituality and Merton's theology? So, you know, you can start with the contemplative stuff and, and um, in some ways, kind of avoid the theology. And then there's other places where you get into, you know, Mary and Jesus Christ and all the the kind of heavy duty stuff, Nicene Creed and all that, which um so I'm I'm interested in the spirituality theology thing and and whether Merton um allows one as opposed to the other.
1: I don't think he does, which is why I like teaching him so much. Um his writings on contemplation are very accessible regardless of your religious background. And, uh, and I think my students appreciate that. But as we, um, uh, as we start delving into his thought in the course, um, you, uh, you cannot help, but understand uh, or come to an understanding that his uh, relationship to contemplation is deeply shaped by his own theology that that students find fascinating and my catholic students will often comment on why wasn't i taught about the contemplative tradition in school, right? They'll say, all I was taught was the doctrine and the ethics. I wasn't taught about the contemplation. And then the, my my non-Catholic students, um, whether they're part of a religious tradition or not, will, are, are fascinated by, um, by Merton's theology. But what particularly fascinates them is that he can be so immersed in and devoted to his own theological tradition and yet simultaneously open to the theological and spiritual traditions of others. And they can't help but respect that. And when they see that it's not rooted in a, a sort of um, um, sense of, you know, well, we're all just fine sort of sense of things when they see that it's rooted in uh, a deep theological uh, commitment and a a deep recognition of the absolute dignity and worth of all people, um, they find that compelling. They feel affirmed, frankly. Merton affirms them, whether where wherever they are, he affirms them as Catholics, he affirms them as Protestants, he affirms them as agnostics. Uh, he, uh, he, he he he's accessible to them all.
2: One person in our on our Zoom call comments, "I think it was Merton's work in silence that contributed greatly to his openness to dialogue. Do you want to? comment on that, develop it, or?
1: Yeah, well, it's in silence that we most deeply come to understand ourselves. Um, It's in silence that uh, we come to recognize um, the ways in which we create barriers between ourselves and others. Uh, Merton wrote about this, particularly in New Seeds of Contemplation um, uh, and in a whole ream of other places. where he talks about the true self and the false self. And um, most of us without silence are spending our times um, living sort of on the surface, reacting to others um, on an instinctual level without uh, delving more deeply into why we're reacting and why we're doing the sort of things that we're doing. And so Merton recognized that it's in silence that Uh, we come not only to understand our own inherent unity with God, but also uh, who we uh, really are. And it's in coming to recognize who we really are that we come to recognize who other people are essentially as well. So Merton's fourth and walnut experience, I think, is a fundamentally contemplative experience. He spent 17 years in the monastery uh, being prepared contemplatively for that experience of seeing Christ in in everybody. Um, And uh, and so, yeah, I think his silence couldn't but help to lead him to uh, a deeper engagement and dialogue with others.
2: Maybe I'll ask this last question, and then Teresa can take it back. Would you say the Fourth and Walnut Street experience was a Eucharistic moment without the outward elements
1: yeah I, I that's what i argued in my book actually is that uh, i think that it's a, a, a eucharistic moment the 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 eucharist is um um particularly as merton understood it uh, a a fundamentally contemplative experience right um a, a, and uh And in it, if we take it seriously, I mean, there are lots of times when I'm at mass and I'm barely paying attention and, you know, uh, you know, that that I I was telling my students yesterday that I was at two masses over the weekend because I was with a group and, uh, I think in one of the masses, I was barely staying awake. And then the other one, you know, my mind was thinking about other things, but if, if we can be contemplatively aware of what's going on, um, uh, we become, uh, we can be overwhelmed by that sense of divine love for us and for others uh, that that compels us to be open to one another. Uh, so yeah, I do think the fourth Malnut experience was a, a Eucharistic one. Well,
0: thank you so much, Greg. Um, I, I, it was a very different talk than I was expecting. Um, I was an academic myself for many years at a Catholic university, in fact, Bellarmine. And I remember the innumerable discussions about Catholic identity, and none of them started with dialogue. And I think you would have some, a great contribution to make to that conversation uh, in, the, in Catholic higher education. Um, I want to t- thank Father Dan Horan and the Spiritual, Spirituality Center at St. Mary's College for providing the Zoom platform and technical support for Tuesdays with Merton. And Alan Culp for, as usual, so skillfully moderating the questions. Uh, Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube. Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. And all of you for joining us today and for continuing to spread the good word about Tuesdays with Merton. We are very grateful for your support. You can find links to the recordings of previous webinars at merton.org ITMS. There you will also find information about the International Thomas Merton Society. If you are not already a member, we invite you to consider joining. And we also welcome donations to help underwrite Tuesdays with Merton. Registration is now open for next month's webinar. Lifelong Mississippi resident, Professor Deborah Kehoe will speak on Thomas Merton and Southern writing. To register, go to merton.org slash And so for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in April.